Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Across the Cemetery. My name's Emma. My name's Josh. And this week Josh is leading the episode. So, as I know it's about again. So, take it away, Josh. You sound so disappointed when you say that. No, but like we used to use the same laptop to do it, didn't we? So we used to know, like hinting what each other was on. But like now it's separate, so I don't know what you're doing and you don't know what I'm doing. Keep it that way. <laughs> so what topic have you got for us this week, Josh? We are going to be talking about people who go missing, but then are found again. Oh. At times, I think each one of us thinks how much easier life would be if we could just get away, even for a little while. Give ourselves time to go over those niggly things that continue to distress us on a daily basis. Whether that be family, work or anything else. That time away will let us figure it out in our own minds and then return reinvigorated. But in the strange and mysterious world that we live in, there are odd cases of people disappearing that still to this day cannot be explained. Cases that don't conform with the absolute logic that the human race needs in order to be able to rationalise events to a satisfactory level, making us feel as though we are still in control. In today's episode, we are going to be looking through a few of history's strangest disappearances, cases that don't conform to our logic requirements. The cases that we cover will take a peek into the background of those who have gone missing and attempt to depict the events to such an extent that any telltale signs are exposed. Although, it must be said, if answers are what you're looking for, this episode may not be for you. Because it is the mystery and potential underlying causes that we discuss at the end of the episode that we are interested in. Looking at the facts to find that they don't make any sense, whichever way you spin them. Do you know of any cases of people disappearing that have returned? I don't know of any cases at the top of my head, but I've been, like, when I've looked on Reddit or other podcasts, um, there's been ones where family members have disappeared and then they've came back and the family members are not the same. So they, they're like a changeling. And another one, does that, uh, not that Madeline McCann, but I know she hasn't came back, but, like, you can find people, like, pretending to be here online and there's, like, DNA tests and everything. Yeah, there was a woman, I'm pretty sure in Germany, that thinks she's Madeleine McCann quite yeah. recently, wasn't there? Um, I don't think we'll ever really find out what happened to Madeleine McCann. Like, obviously people know, but I don't think the public will ever find out, because her family are really rich, aren't they? I think they're alright, I think they're really rich. I think they're okay. They've got, like, high contract, like, they've got friends in high places. Okay. Get right in there with the conspiracy theory then. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know of any, so I'm looking forward to this. Okay, well the first one, first case we have is of a Richard John Bingham, known as Lord Lucan. This is a case that may serve well to highlight the power of money over our society, or potentially something deeper than this. Looking back at the basic facts surrounding our first case, Lord Lucan was born in 1934 as Richard John Bingham to parents George Lucan, 6th Lord of Lucan, and Caitlin Dawson. 
He went on to study at Eton before moving into a career of merchant banking with a side hustle of professional gambling. Yes, I know exactly what you're about to say. Fucking hell. And of course you went to fucking Eton. I knew that. I, I could see that in your brain working. I hate Eton wankers, sorry. What are you saying sorry then? In case anyone listens. <laughs> and they're from Eton. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Sorry, Boris. <laughs> Being one for the high life and enjoying the finer things that London had to offer, it is also claimed that Lord Lucan was once considered to play the role of James Bond, as, of course, he was friends with the character's creator, Ian Fleming. What have I said about friends in high places? Although, with all the riches and glamour, Lord Lucan became national use following his mysterious disappearance from his home in London in 1974 at age 39. Now, there may be an initial feeling of sorrow or sympathy for the vanishing lord, but the case deepens. You see, Lord Lucan was alleged to be estranged from his wife. While not divorced, they were certainly not together. This was said to stem from his wife suffering from postnatal depression and as a result requiring an extra set of hands to look after the children. This was sought from by a nanny who went by the name of Sandra Rivet who began working for the family in 1974. This is riveting. That wasn't. (laughs) Now, the sinister turn in the story is why Lord Lucan is the subject of many books and even an ITV dramatisation. On the bleak evening of the 7th November 1974, Sandra Rivet's remains were found in the basement kitchen of Lord Lucan's Belgravia home. Belgravia is, as you'd imagine, a very fucking posh area of I London. I thought it was. Actually, that's where that pub was that we done last week, the Grenadier. Exactly, that's <laughs> how posh it was. After working for the family for a matter of months, the unfortunate fate for the nanny was her remains being found in a canvas mailbag after having been beaten to death with a lead pipe. Fucking hell. It is claimed by Lady Lucan that her husband had admitted to murdering Miss Rivet but that the whole incident had been an accident. An inquest later found that Lord Lucan was the one responsible for the untimely death of the nanny, yet he was nowhere to be found when it came to charging somebody for the crime of murder. Days after the incident had occurred, the Lord's car was found abandoned in New Haven on the south coast of England, just under two hours' drive from his central London home. The car itself was covered in blood, presumed to be the product of the crime that had been committed, yet the owner of the vehicle was still missing. His wife claims that he jumped to his own demise from a ferry that was leaving New Haven, yet this was not confirmed by any form of incident report or police records. Legally, Lord Lucan was pronounced dead in 1999, with his wife passing away in 2017 of what was believed to be an overdose, following her self-diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. With the case all but cold, you would think that there would be nothing more to say on this instance. One victim, one unlocatable murderer, and one wife who seems to know exactly what happened, but nothing can be proven. It is of little surprise then, and it has been claimed many times, that Lord Lucan did not die after jumping off a ferry, but he in fact remained alive and well for many years after the murder, potentially even to this day, when he would be in his 80s. The first report of sightings began to roll in around 1975, 
where it was claimed that the wanted man was seen down under in Australia. But this was soon conflicted by reports that the man had supposedly been spotted in northern France, as well as residing in rural Africa under the pseudonym of Jungle Barry. Jungle Barry? <laughs> Fuck off. Catchy aliases aside, see how I knew you were going to say that and I even <laughs> wrote it into a script before. <laughs> you never? I did. I'm an emotional. <laughs> I have scriptural proof if anybody needs it. I know exactly <laughs> what Emma's thinking at all times. No, you don't. What am I thinking of? You're a dickhead. <laughs> Catchy aliases aside, official correspondence from Scotland Yard in 1978 asked the Barbados police to investigate reports that a British resident was regularly sending funds to somebody suspected to be Lord Lucan in South America. With such vague facts and endless possibilities, rumours also began to fly around as to the true fate of the violent Lord. One suggested that he had been taken captive by the IRA and held to ransom, only to have shot himself in a bid to escape a drawn-out painful end. If this rumour is to be believed, he also requested that his remains be fed to the tigers at Kent Zoo. What? That his friend owned the zoo, obviously. Oh my god. It, it legitimately, his friend did own Kent Zoo. Of course. <laughs> Alternatively, one train of thought suggested that Lord Lucan got plastic surgery following the murder to forever be in disguise and attempt to flee justice. Although, coming into the modern day, we may have somewhat of a revelation in the case. One report from late 2022 states that a Professor Hassan Ugale has potentially identified a man that may well be Lord Lucan, alive and well. The work of the Professor is so prolific that he was able to use facial recognition software and AI algorithms to identify two Russian spies who were responsible for the Salisbury poisoning in 2018. The Professor alleges that after cross-referencing seven photos, four of Lord Lucan and three of the supposed alive Lord Lucan, on 4,000 different areas, the system that has never been wrong before has apparently caught a man in Australia that is, according to science, Lord Lucan. Is that Jungle Barry? Yeah, they're all the same people. No, I mean, is he the one in Australia that was known as Jungle Barry? No, Jungle Barry was in Africa. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I think he was having an affair with the mistress and the mistress got pregnant, so he killed her. I mean, it's undisputed that he killed her. I think he it's, did. It's his disappearance. <laughs> I think he killed her and then he fucked off. Quite likely, quite likely. And he's, he's friends with Ian Fleming and Ian Fleming is known for spy things, so he helped her. He wrote his demise, not demise. Ian Fleming is a fictional author. He was also in the military. He might use them as um, inspo. Maybe, yeah. I can't really argue with that one. <laughs> I think part of it is all true. So I think he did go to di- many different parts. Yeah. So I think he did travel around. That's one way to stay out of, of the limelight. But in his old age now, if he is still alive, then maybe... He's just staying. He has been caught up yeah. to. He probably doesn't really care what happens to him at this point. Well, no, if you're in your 80s, if you, even if you've got a life sentence or whatever, you've not, not, I know this sounds nasty, but you've not got that long left, have you? Mm. I wonder how much of an involvement the wife had, because she was sort of cleared of any wrongdoing yeah. from the get-go, but she seemed to know a lot about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, maybe she done it, and then, or maybe they done it together, I don't know, but like, 
he'd been spotted with a woman at least, wouldn't he? If they were still together. Yeah. They weren't, were they? Because they were estranged. Strange. Yeah, strange. But who knows? Maybe he'd come up soon because it that last report where they potentially found yeah, who he yeah. is that was just from la- the end of last year. So it might come out soon. Yeah, it? maybe it'll all come out in the in the wash, as yeah. they say. The next story we have is apologies. This is a name I'm going to butcher. Ishin Usoku Uwano, who is a man from Japan. Oh. The next case we're going to visit isn't so much of a mysterious cliffhanger, but does have some questions that I'm sure we would like answers to. In 1943, Mr. Uwano was drafted into the Imperial Japanese Army to join the war efforts and take back an island named Sakhalin which had been seized by Soviet forces in the twilight years of World War II. Well, he conformed to his patriotic duty and went to defend the island until the war was declared over in 1945. Now, usually following such traumatic events, and with most of the people fighting not actually wanting to be there, it is no surprise that the vast majority of Japanese soldiers stationed in the area made the trip back over the Sea of Japan to their homeland to be reunited with their families and loved ones. This sadly wasn't the case for the Yuonu family, as their brave relative tragically never returned. The news settled in with the family, and they did eventually begin to live their regular lives again, handling their grief in their own way. The loss of Ishinosoku was believed to such an extent that in the year 2000, he was moved off the missing persons list onto the Japanese dead at war register. Well, the twist in this tale is that a government official charged with finding lost Japanese citizens abroad began to hear whispers of a man originally from Japan who has now been living in Ukraine for well over half a century. Upon investigation, this transpired to be true and was in fact Ishinosoku Uwano, alive and well, now in his 80s. What? Are we, oh my god. It transpired that the soldier had made his way to Ukraine following the war and evidently liked the place so much he stayed, got married to a local woman and began a family of his own. Living around 90 miles from the capital of Kiev, Uwano never so much as wrote to his family back home to let them know that he was okay or that he had in fact got married. Following the discovery of Uwanu still alive and well by the Japanese government, he was escorted back to Japan for a 10-day visit to see his family and visit his homeland. But this was all he wanted, as he declared that Ukraine was now his homeland. I wonder what did possess him not to contact his relatives or even venture back to his homeland on holiday following the end of the war. It is usually the first place a person would want to go after such traumatic events, but that clearly wasn't the case for Yuanu. I think that's so sad that he didn't want to be with his family. Like, I know some people don't get on with their family, or like a lot of people just like speak to their family because they're family, and if they weren't family, then they wouldn't want anything to do with them. But it's so sad. Like His poor family have been worried about him, and then they think he's died, and he didn't even... like. Even send them a letter or anything. Yeah, it just makes you wonder what was going through his mind. Like, what have his family done? Yeah. Even if things weren't great at home, you know, after he was away for, what, two years at least, at war, 
you probably think, okay, even if I don't want to see any of them again, I'll probably still go home anyway. Yeah, or even just send them a letter. Yeah, even going traveling after the war makes a bit of sense. You've got freedom, you can go where you want, you're overseas. Yeah. Okay, but eventually you do, you would probably return home. Surely he's have friends as well, not just family. Well, he made a new life in Ukraine, apparently. That's so weird. Mm. There's also another story of a Japanese soldier that was stationed on like a remote tropical island. And essentially, when the war finished, the message didn't get to him. Oh, right. And he stayed on the tropical island defending it, as always at war, until the 1970s. Oh, my God. And wouldn't stop being on guard, essentially, until he had spoken to his old commanding officer, who then told him the war finished like 40 years ago. My God, that's what a wasted life. Like, I know that sounds horrible, but like, he could have done so much more in that time. Ireland was well defended though, wasn't it? Yeah. No one took it over in that time. <laughs> so we move on to our third story, which is of Betty and Barney Hill. Have you ever heard these names? Yeah, okay. I've, I've heard it on American Horror Story, I think. I, I think that's what I've heard. I from. thought you might have heard <laughs> the story, but we'll go over it anyway, because it took me a long fucking time to write this. <laughs> I don't know it in great detail. And American Horror Story is probably budgeted anyway. No. <laughs> you may have noticed that the stories that I've covered so far, to some extent, are explainable and allow us to use a bit of logic to determine what truly happened to the protagonist. Well, what about a story that may stray away from the logic and rationality that us human beings need to make a case rest easy on the mind? Well, let's look at the case of Betty and Barney Hill. The story begins with a couple setting out on a much-needed break away from their stressful lives, with Betty working as a social worker and Barney labouring away at his job at the post office. The two were long overdue some R&R. That, and the fact that they had been married for almost a year and a half without a honeymoon to speak of, meant that the pair were eager to take some time away from their usual setting of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. New Hampshire! Oh yeah, I wonder if they say that one wrong. <laughs> Sorry, Americans. Their excursion saw them taking in the sights of Montreal and Niagara Falls, making the most of what they knew was destined to be a short-lived trip. The final stretch of the trip saw the couple sitting in a Vermont diner, chugging away on some much-needed coffee as they prepared themselves to drive through the night back home in a bid to make it back by the small hours. Heading into the darkness... The start of the long drive after a spontaneous and joyful weekend results in a solemn mood within the car. Barney was driving at some speed, nothing unsafe, but just enough to try and get the journey over with, and in a bid to outrun the inbound stormy weather that the news had told was coming their way. Up until this point, the night had been fairly calm and clear. Having served in the military during World War II and being an avid plane spotter, It was instinctive for Barney to keep an eye on conditions above. He noticed that in the distance, up above, there was a bright light that appeared to be streaking across the sky. Nothing caused alarm in the couple at this stage. It was probably just a plane or maybe a shooting star, right? Dun dun dun! It grew closer, emanating its bright fluorescent-like light, becoming more blinding as the minutes wore on. Barney was gripping the steering wheel, as though he was in preparation for some sort of attack. But on the outside, he used as calm a voice as he could to reassure Betty 
that there was certainly nothing to worry about, and it was likely just a satellite moving off course. This explanation faded into falsity once the road began to veer left and then right repetitively as it navigated a path around the side of a small mountain. Being pitch black outside, the newlyweds could very clearly see that the so-called satellite was mimicking their every movement, keeping pace and seemingly following them through the darkness. Trying to glimpse what this thing was, Betty peered through binoculars as Barney continued to steer the car along the road, trying his very best to keep calm and collected in order to stay in control of the situation. Moments later, however, the couple were washed over by a flood of relief when the light took up an enormous amount of speed and veered its way around the mountain, eventually out of sight. All that remained were the headlights of the couple's car, etching into the darkness as they traversed the never-ending tarmac road. Subdued hysteria overcame the cabin of the vehicle. Speculation and theories of what the light was were thrown about at spectacular speed. While Barney attempted to be the voice of reason, calming his wife down and reassuring her that it must have been some new plane, a prototype helicopter, or absolutely anything that the rational mind would accept as the truth of what this light actually was. The conversation continued for some 10 minutes, the couple still ploughing through their journey. Rounding a large, sweeping corner, they soon fell silent. It was back. Although now, it was so low it was blinding, bringing Barney and Betty to a complete halt, with their vision out of the windshield of four silhouettes pacing their way towards the vehicle. The couple began to feel drowsy. With an irresistible urge to rest their eyes, their senses weakened, and eventually they lost all consciousness. Coming to around two hours later, and roughly 35 miles from where they last remember driving, the couple were hazed with confusion as to what had just happened. Neither of them had any memory of the lost time, and eventually just decided that they would be better off making the rest of the way home and attempting to make sense of it all when they were back in the sanctuary of their house. The events that filled the missing time still evaded Barney and Betty. They knew something was amiss, but just could not recall in their minds what it was. Their nights began to be haunted of dreams, which depicted what they thought were snippets of that night. It was only after the couple began suffering from the anxiety of not knowing for a number of years that they did eventually seek the help of a medical professional, a psychiatrist named Benjamin Simon, who happened to specialise in hypnosis. Through months of guided sessions, Dr. Simon made a startling breakthrough that would cement the Hill story into the history books. It was discovered that the light which pierced through the night sky, seemingly following Barney and Betty as they drove, was in fact a vessel of sorts. The pair told that after falling asleep, they were both guided on board this vessel by grey uniformed beings. While on the craft, the two were separated and put into separate rooms that were likened to surgical theatres but with unfamiliar equipment. A number of procedures were conducted on the two unwilling subjects, including the scraping of hair and skin right through to large needles being inserted into Betty, supposedly to assess whether she was pregnant or not. What's more, is both Barney and Betty refer to one particular character 
as the leader, one who spectated during the testing of the married couple. It is said that Betty asked this being where they were from, and his response was sarcastically that if Betty wasn't familiar with the solar system, it would be pointless trying to explain to her where he came from. Despite this, it is said that under hypnosis, Betty drew a map of a planetary system that was likened to a system that does exist, but could most certainly not be reached with modern human technology, let alone the technology of 1961. So, if the story is to be believed, this couple were missing for a matter of two hours, and the culprit? Extraterrestrial beings, curious to find out a bit more of the human race. Of course, there are some theories that surround this topic, but we'll leave these to the end. See, I don't know. I like I've said this before. I'm indifferent to alien stories. Like I like them, but I don't believe them. That, that's fair enough. You're entitled to your opinion. But then again, they were both under hypnosis, and they both said it. I think aliens is a topic in of itself. This episode isn't meant to just be about aliens. It's meant to be about people that disappeared and then reappeared. Yeah. While not for such a long time as the first two stories, they did go missing for two hours. So they say there was no other sort of um, witnesses to this. I was just going to say, who can collaborate? Collaborate. Collaborate. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think anyone actually can. It's just their story they're going off and their hypnosis. Um, But we'll talk more about this after the next story. Okay. The last story we have is named Bill Goes Camping. Oh, we've just been camping. But Bill went camping, right? And did he come back? Yes. <laughs> and he had a joyful time. So did we? Um, yeah. Well, he might not have had a joyful time. Listen to the story, you'll find out. Come on, mate. This final story is one I have saved until last, as it supports the accounts of Barney and Betty Hill. The tale was recounted in 1994 by the Los Angeles Times. It recounts of an experience relayed by a grown man with a family that religiously attends church and realises the gravity of what he is claiming. Bill is a name given to ensure anonymity for the man in the story. It begins in 1967 when Bill and his friend went on a camping trip to a nearby woods during their summer off of school. It was a sort of ritual of theirs and something they both looked forward to, being free from the restraints of parents and teachers. All was going to plan. The tent was up, the fire was roaring, and the pair spoke for hours about their future plans and what they expected to come of their lives when they could escape the confinements of their small town. The clock moved past 12 and into the small hours of the morning when the friends decided that it was probably time to try and get some sleep. Laying down in their tent, the pair left the door unzipped and folded it over so they could look out into the clear night sky. That's when they saw it. A myriad of orange and blue lights pirouetting back and forth across the sky like a discoloured shooting star that had been restricted by two unseen walls. Bill had never seen anything like it and in his astonishment he pinched his friend to make sure that he was awake and seeing the same thing. The irritated screech that came from the right of Bill let him know that his friend was also witnessing the light show. <laughs> but as quickly 
as whatever this thing was had appeared, it vanished, leaving no trace of its presence and an all but curious memory for Bill and his friends. That was until the memory started to creep into Bill's subconscious mind, providing what felt like super realistic flashbacks whenever Bill dreamt. Again, this went on for years until enough was enough for Bill and he sought professional help. This was provided by one Yvonne Smith, a hypnotherapist. His, session, his sessions with Bill, who was a grown man at this point, led to some incredible discoveries. In the depths of Bill's subconscious mind, when he was on that camping trip, he recalled that once the lights had started pivoting overhead in the sky, he was actually beamed up onto the aircraft and confronted by four humanoid-type creatures. The abductors led Bill into a room where he was medically examined, looking at all aspects of his body and even taking samples of various elements of his being. Bill remembers being prodded and probed with instruments and equipment that he had never seen before or since. It is said that from the hypnosis sessions, Bill is certain that it was a one-time ordeal and that he has never been abducted since. What is uncertain is the length of time that Bill was actually gone for. From his initial memory, he recalled watching the lights with his friend, but further analysis revealed that Bill had actually been taken away from his tent and examined. One thing that he is now very certain on, following the hypnotherapy, is that something out there has the power to take people at will and make them feel as though they never left. Something that will continue to haunt him until the day he dies. That will haunt me. And I was just thinking then, like, why, what gives them the right to take people away and examine them? But I knew for a fact if we had something like that, the, the people in charge would do the same. Yeah, it's nice to know that all the other beings out there are equally as cunty as humans. Yeah. But yeah, you know, the way he was saying his friend was screaming, maybe his friend was screaming because he got took away too. Maybe, yeah. It, it's interesting that while I was looking into that story, there was no recount of his friend. Yeah. So, to his friend, was... Bill just sat next to him the whole time while they were watching these lights. Yeah. Does his friend even remember the lights? Yeah. Does his friend have any like sort of subdued memories that he's not showing or, or letting people know of? Yeah. It, it leaves a lot of unanswered questions, but according to the story, Bill disappeared for a while. Doesn't know how long, but it must have been a while because he had all this medical work, like... Examined them. Yeah, unless they ta- they can slow time down on our on our plane or what whatever. Yeah, potentially that might be. Because like light years and stuff, they go, they're quicker, aren't they, or longer? I don't. I'm not very good at science, but. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that might be something for somebody with many an intelligence talking to. Many letters after their name. Yeah. <laughs> the correct letters. <laughs> So we have some theories. We have two theories. Now, with the first two stories, we looked at cases that may have some explanation that would ring plausible with our rational everyday minds. Reasoning that could range from murder, kidnap, escaping voluntarily, to the type of stuff that, while disturbing in its own right, it is something we can wrap our heads around. Well, what about the last two stories? What do we blame those experiences on? 
it may be safe to say that those involved in the stories will be adamant on who took them away and ultimately who brought them back. But it wouldn't be a theory section if we didn't look at both sides of the story now, would it? So theory number one, it didn't happen. The last two stories or all of the stories? The last two stories. Oh, okay. So the, these theories are, if the little intros there didn't make it very clear, these theories are based on off of the last two stories. No, w- it did make it clear now, I've realised. I just, <sighs> just in my own world. I wish you'd listen to me sometimes. <laughs> so theory number one, it didn't happen. This may sound blunt, but there is reasoning behind the title to theory number one. Studies have been conducted that resulted in scientists blaming people's experiences on essentially dreaming with their eyes open, thinking up a situation with such detail that they simply believe it to be true. What's more, when studying people who relayed that they have been abducted and tested by unknown beings, it was found that their reaction when telling their story was similar to somebody who was relaying a story of them being involved in a car crash or other horrific event. They truly believe that this has happened to them, to the extent that their body is reacting in the natural ways it should be to trauma. Another potential topic explored to explain away these events is what is referred to as magical ideation. This means that those who fall into this category have vivid imaginations, with the ability to create stories and events that have depth and elements of reality to them, making them seem true. It is said that particularly in the case of Barney and Betty Hill, stress can cause an outbreak in magical ideation, fueling sparks of creativity. It is assumed that this couple were under a lot of stress as they were an interracial couple during the 1960s, alongside the prejudices of race that were rampant in the day. There were also the threat of Cold War looming and the various civil rights movements that were taking place at the time. This stress has been told to stimulate creativity in terms of the actual details told in the account of those abducted. In theory, the more stressed they are, the more elaborate the tale. And once again, to round the theory off, as the lead cynic of the podcast, I do have to mention this part. The Hills made a ton of money off their alleged encounter. They got book deals, news deals, and not to mention film and TV work. It always strikes a chord in my mind that if somebody benefits from their experience like that, has it been fabricated to serve exactly that purpose? I could be wrong, but it always inserts that niggling doubt in my mind. I don't think it happened to them because, like I said before, um, there's no one to prove that it happened. And they're both a couple. And like you said, the the newlyweds, I think, not saying all newlyweds don't have money, but they mightn't have money, and yet they're just trying to—they're trying to make a name for them. not a name for themselves, but they're trying to do something. Because they only had not mundane jobs, but they only had—they didn't have like big, big jobs. Well, it's interesting. You, s- I know I touched on the point of money, but you brought up the point of money as well, because apparently, according to the stories or the various recounts of it. Because it's all over the place. Like there's film footage of them speaking, and there's all these different types of stuff. They mentioned that they didn't have much money in their pocket when they left for this journey. Mm. So 
maybe it was a sort of off-the-cuff plan on the way back to see, oh, yeah. can we make something of this? Because they went on the honeymoon and they were like, shit, we probably couldn't afford that. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Their excuse for not having much money in the pocket was essentially, by the time they left on the Friday, they'd left it too late to go to the bank to get money out. Uh, right. So it may have been plausible yeah. and, and I'm just looking into it a bit too much, but, you know. I also don't like the part where you said people have vivid imaginations and then they start to believe, like, dreams or real or whatever like why would they both have that so like uh, that's why i also don't think it's real maybe it's just a supportive thing so if one starts getting these dreams and starts to relay them back to the other partner the other partner is going to be thinking about that quite a lot and thinking oh are they okay what's going on with them but maybe that starts creeping into their subconscious then and they yeah. start having similar dreams because they're thinking about that aspect so much. Yeah, maybe, actually. I still don't think it's real, though. Okay. Well, I've got <laughs> one more theory. Theory number two? Yeah. Aliens. Oh. This next theory is one that I'm sure you will have guessed by now. I've tried to avoid saying the A word up until this point in the episode, but it is unavoidable now. That's right. The experiences in the last two stories, particularly were aliens. With this train of thought, there isn't much in the way of support or documentation to back it up, and to me, that is in a way a telling factor in of itself. That's because, if there are aliens out there, from what we have heard in the last two stories, they're quite secretive. So wouldn't they want to remain hidden from our attention? Or wouldn't the man, in inverted commas, try to shield us from the truth? There are numerous conspiracy theories that surround the topic and is something that would be interesting to explore on its own merits. But in conjunction with this, why is it that the vast majority of supposed encounters involve the medical examination of the abducted? Surely, even if some of the events had occurred, they can't all be lying, can they? Obviously, theory number one does try to dispel this notion to some extent, But my counter-argument here is, how can so many people be wrong? We have covered two stories here today, but there are hundreds if not thousands more out there. The law of averages dictates that at least some have to be truthful, don't they? I think that they might be truthful. I do think that there will be life on another planet, but I don't think that every person that is abducted... um, or that a person is abducted. I don't think that they're going to get probed and poked about and examined. I think the aliens will probably want to stay away from us because we'll we do the exact same to them what they would allegedly do to us. Yeah. Have you seen ET? Uh, I didn't realize that was like a full blown documentary. <laughs> Fuck off. So, I agree to an extent, and just to sort of counter the counter argument. I put there, or mentioned there, that there's so many stories out there. So one of like the psychology elements that counteracts that there are so many stories that sell, tell similar tales is essentially saying that they're of a herd mentality. Yeah. So they get an idea in their head from reading these stories, and that's just set in mind now. Because if you think alien abduction now to somebody off the cuff, without listening to this podcast, 40 odd minutes worth of talking about people disappearing. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. If you said somebody got abducted by aliens to a random person on the street, 
they'd probably run away from you. But if you found <laughs> someone that would have a conversation with you about alien abduction, yeah. they at some point they would probably bring up medical examination of some kind. Or like the anal probe. Exactly. So it's like a herd mentality. That is what people think of when yeah. you talk of alien abductions or abductions by other beings. Yeah. So I think that explains it away to some extent. Do I think that they're all false? No, I think some might be real. I think some might be real, and I, like like I said, I think you would be um, naive. Yeah, I think naive. you'd be naive to not think that there's not a lot other life forms on planet because there is. We're obviously not the only life form. Yeah, but I think you could also argue that regardless of whether you. You could believe that there's life forms out there without believing these stories. Yeah, well, we all have like this bias, like prejudice, bias, whatever. And um, when people say aliens, you also you always think of like this grey creature or green with big black eyes and. Mm. Um, and you can thank Barney and Betty Hill for that. Thanks, Barney. Thanks, Betty. But you're lying. <laughs> Ruthless. So. I think that may be a good area, a good place to, to end on. Yeah. Like I said at the start, that there isn't really an answer. It's. It, I'd like to explore alien encounters, not necessarily abductions, but alien encounters in more detail, because obviously we've touched on a couple of phenomenons in the early episodes of the podcast that potentially are aliens. Yeah. I would like to say I'd like to look into a bit more in an attempt to find answers, but will we find answers? Probably not. I just also don't think like why would they abduct you? Like, I just, I just. What makes you so fucking special? Yeah, why, why, why are those people chosen? Why aren't we? Maybe because they're in a vulnerable position. Maybe oh. like Betty and Barney, they were in the middle of nowhere. Like yeah. Bill, they were in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but like, if the abductor is a person like us, we'd believe them. Oh yeah. Oh, fine. Standing in society. <laughs> Okay. Because I have a fucking lot to examine in my oh, brain. Oh, throw you fucking right back. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. We haven't got the technology for that shit. <laughs> so. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. If you have been abducted, not really, but if you do have some stories, or you have actually been abducted, I'd or love to hear it. Yeah. I'd love to hear about it, because there are hotspots around the world of encounters with things that we can't explain. There's Roswell, isn't there? Isn't that by Vegas? It's out the sort of deserty part yeah. of America, of North America, yeah. But in in England, there's even their own. I'm not too sure where they are, but there's like certain areas that are like yeah. hot spots for sightings of yeah. unknown flying aircraft. And the Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, which you did mention has some strange goings on of its own. Yeah. So. If you have anything you'd like to input on this one, please send us an email to acrossthecemetery at gmail.com. You can also reach us on social media. So we're on TikTok at Cemetery, Twitter at Cemetery, and Instagram at Across the Cemetery. And if you'd like to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to, that would be very beneficial for the podcast. But we'd also like to hear what you think and if we're doing a good job or if you've got any recommendations. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
It was a sort of ritual of theirs and something they both looked forward to. Being free from the restraint... Restraint? Just fucking scouts, then. 